Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. And this is a Big moment for me because I am christening a brand new computer by recording a brand new episode. Very, very excited. I did, however, do some editing for another podcast, so I guess that technically christened the computer, but this is my first time recording on my brand new MacBook laptop computer. I had quite an interesting weekend as a whole on Thursday when I was getting ready to put up the mini episode, my computer started shutting down randomly, which is not great. So I gave it a little bit of a rest, figured maybe it was just overheating, gave it a bit of a break. Of course, that was the first day that I started editing for that other show as well. And I was like, fuck, I really wanted to get this done quickly and show how quick and good of a worker I am and all of that kind of stuff. But I ended up returning to editing on Friday and my computer officially kaputted on me. So I quickly went to the Best Buy website and Max and I had to figure out how we were going to afford a new computer. And we thankfully were able to get one within an hour. I ran out and grabbed it and kept working. It was so stressful. You never want to put the wrong foot forward, you know, when you start working for new people or when you meet new people. So having this many technical difficulties while editing for the first time for this show was very, very stressful for me. And it also threw a bit of a wrench into some of my time for research and things like that. I was planning on finishing the Patreon episode and having it up at this point, but because my computer was acting so strange, I wasn't able to work on it very consistently over the last four days, but I'm going to have plenty of time for it now. So I'm going to be releasing the first episode covering The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath to the Angry Feminist Book Club on Patreon very, very shortly. I'm so sorry. And Patreon is a great place to support the show, support me, and also to get some extra content. If you haven't joined Patreon yet, you have so much content to binge right now. You can join the Angry Feminist Book Club for $5 a month, or you can become a feminist fave for $8 a month, where you get all of the Angry Feminist Book Club content. You also get these episodes a little bit early and ad-free, and now I am also doing little recap rundown episodes after I upload the episode on Monday, where I leave you with any concluding thoughts and feelings on the episode, maybe add some things that I missed or forgot or other thoughts that I had while editing the episode, so on and so forth. I really, really appreciate everyone who has already joined the Patreon, but it would be an even greater gift to have even more of you join me on there. You can just go to patreon.com slash angryneighborhoodfeminist or you can click on the link in the show notes and it'll take you right there. And I also wanted to remind you all that on this Friday's episode, I really want to tell some Santa Claus stories, Elf on the Shelf stories, magical Christmas stories. I want to know when did you find out that Santa wasn't real? What was your experience like with Santa as a kid? Because as someone who works in childcare, 
And I see a lot of different kids and their reactions to Santa and Elf on the Shelf and things like that. I'm just really curious what all of your experiences are. And all of this was really brought on by the fact that my little 10-year-old that I take care of still wholeheartedly believes in the magic of Christmas, which was astonishing to me in this day and age that she hadn't had that dream squashed already. And I just thought it would be a fun little holiday treat for us all to share some of those stories. So if you want to share with me your feelings about all of that or experiences that you've had, email me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at angry neighborhood feminist. If you don't follow me on Instagram as well, you should definitely do that. That's where everything goes down in regards to this show. And if all of you could have those in for me by like Thursday morning, that would be great. I do try to record the episode as early as I can on Thursday so I can get it a little bit early to Patreon listeners and have it all set up for you by Friday and I can actually enjoy my Thursday evening with Max since he has a day off. Really, I planned all of this terribly with Keegan years ago. We had chosen Thursday as our recording day, and we usually would do both episodes in one day. And we chose Thursday because that was the one day a week that I had off from nannying. So I could get everything together before recording on Thursday during the day. And then when Keegan was done with work, I would go over to her house and we would get in the closet and record. Now it's kind of a pain in the ass because I typically record on Thursdays and Sundays and those happen to be the days off for Max. So we usually end up spending most of the day separate anyway, which is kind of a bummer. But this is the life that I have chosen for myself and here we are. Thankfully on Sundays, he's usually pretty busy watching football. As I record this, he is currently watching the Cowboys game, so he's happy. All right, let's get into the topic of the week, and that is polygamy. Now, this may seem random to some of you, but a little while ago on Instagram, I asked you all what you wanted me to cover next on the show, and the first response that I got was polygamy. And my response to this person was, I'm like, well, if I talk about polygamy, I'm going to have to talk a lot about the Mormon church. Is that something you'd be interested in? And they were like, yes, that's exactly what I want. So if that's exactly what at least one listener wants, that's what this one listener is going to get. I have been fascinated by the FLDS church in particular, or cult, I should say, really, for a really, really long time. I'm mentioning it throughout the episode, but I've read a couple memoirs of people who have left the cult and I've also watched multiple documentaries. I've read John Krakauer's book, Under the Banner of Heaven. I'm by no means an expert, but I find the experiences of the people who lived in the FLDS to be incredibly fascinating. And one of the most fascinating things to me about the FLDS and what I think makes them different than many other cults and obviously different from the mainstream churches is that they practice polygamy. And that is a very strongly held belief within the fundamentalist sects of the Mormon church. As I will be discussing the Mormon faith a lot during this episode, I do want to say just a few things before I get started. I am in no way meaning to bash the Mormon or LDS religion as a whole, though I do have many issues with organized religion in general, so my vitriol or my critique of any sort of organized religion is always going to be about the same, and this is not meant as an attack on the Mormon faith or the followers of the faith in particular. My criticism will lie mostly with these specific perpetrators of crimes against women and children by the leaders of the church throughout history. Secondly, I am well aware and want to make very clear that the LDS religion has admonished polygamy as a practice in their faith since 1890, and they have spent every year since doing their best to separate themselves from their religion's past, their founders' actions, and the actions of the fundamentalist Mormon sects. And one other thing, I want to make clear before I go any further that I am well aware of the difference between polygamy and polyamory. 
Polygamy, as we will learn, is at its core a patriarchal structure instilled to control and hurt women. Polyamory, on the other hand, is a much more recent phenomenon, again, more on that later, which is the practice of having multiple romantic partners with the full consent of all people involved. There is no deception or hierarchy within the relationship. Okay, now that we got that cleared up, let's move on. The word polygamy means state of marriage to many spouses, but there are also more specific terms. When a man is married to more than one woman, sociologists call this polygyny. Polygyny? Polygyny? I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing it wrong. I'm an idiot. And when a woman is married to more than one man, it's called polyandry. The more common term to use to cover all of those bases is polygamy. So that's the word I'm going to be using for most of this episode. And zoologists and sociobiologists use polygamy in a broad sense to mean any form of multiple mating. So fuck it. I'm doing what the zoologists say. It's also important to note that polyandry, or one woman having multiple male partners, is way less common than polygyny. (laughs) So you can pretty much assume that when we're talking about marrying multiple people, you can assume that it is going to be a man marrying multiple women. Polygamy, stating the obvious here, is the opposite of monogamy, which means that you only have one partner. Another term to know is bigamy, which is a little bit different than polygamy, but definitely ties together. And bigamy is when you enter into another marriage while still being married to someone else. Polygamy is most common in a region that has been given the unfortunate nickname of polygamy belt, which consists of West Africa and Central Africa. And the countries within that area estimated to have the highest level of polygamy prevalence is Burkina Faso, Mali, Gambia, Niger, and Nigeria. Other countries and cultures that have practiced polygamy at one point or another are Thailand, who legally recognized polygamy until 19. 35, some pre-Christian Celtic traditions included polygamy, and even the Old Testament in Christianity referenced polygamy. In the United States, one of the longest-running and prevalent groups of people to practice polygamy are the Fundamentalist Latter-day Saints or the Fundamentalist Mormons. Because of that, I'm going to focus heavily on the foundation of the Mormon religion and Joseph Smith's revelations and how they affected American women throughout history to this very day. It is a fairly well-known example of the kinds of evil that occurs when polygamy is allowed within any culture. In preparation for this episode, I read a couple of academic papers regarding polygamy and the patriarchy. One of them focused on violence against women and the root for why men feel the need to dominate and harm women. This paper says, We argue here that female financial and social independence are feared not merely because of their material effects, but also because of the threat they pose to cultural values, status, and personal power of many men, particularly in underdeveloped and developing regions of the world. Specifically, the emancipation of women erodes men's control over their own families in ways that are potentially culturally humiliating and emotionally painful for men, especially those emanating from a tradition of strong patriarchy. And as we all should know by now, the patriarchy is a hierarchical system which places the male sex as the head. This system has validated man's power for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years, passing down male supremacy from son to son all over the world. The whole world runs on a patriarchal system, which was fundamentally built to oppress women. Since the dawn of time, women have been tokenized and objectified. They are first possessions of their fathers until they are, quote-unquote, given away to their husbands, who then becomes their possessors. And if a wife is truly seen as a husband's possession, it would only make sense for many societies to then believe that more wives equals more power. It's like, look at all these women I have. Look how powerful my dick is. And polygamy as a concept remains a common practice around the world to this day. It exists in more than 83% of cultures worldwide, and everywhere the practice is more widespread among high-status, high-wealth men. You wouldn't normally see a poverty-stricken man with multiple wives. How would he afford it? This paper continues, We argue that violence toward women and children and suppression of basic rights can be potentiated by a number of factors, including patriarchy, patriarchality, and polygyny. 
patrilocality, for those of you who were wondering, refers to when a newlywed couple lives close to the husband's family as a way for men to maintain close proximity with their male relatives. It's also a way for men to stay in control of their family and its lineage. They continue, These cultural features and social structures often go hand in hand. In combination, enhance male control over women and children in ways that allow and often encourage violence and suppression of political rights and liberties. In these strictly patriarchal societies where polygamy is practiced, women are particularly beholden to their husbands in similar ways that American women were before women's liberation. Women are often at the mercy of the men in their lives, either their father or their husband, who can provide for her, meaning the men end up making decisions regarding their education, their finances, their employment, and more. A woman's position in society is also determined by marriage. A woman is expected to find a suitable man with enough money to be able to take care of her, and many times marriages were more like business dealings between the father and the groom than anything else, at least in higher society. Also in these societies, divorce is uncommon and is usually only permitted for the man and the couple. So once a dude has been chosen and you get married, that's it. There's so much more about this in the paper, but I need to stick to the topic of plural marriage. And to do that, we have to get into the history of polygamy in the United States. And to do that, I have to introduce you to the history of the Mormon faith itself. And a man named Joseph Smith, the founder of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or LDS, or the Mormon Church. Publicly, there were about 38 years of polygamy within the Mormon Church from about 1852 until 1890, but records show that members of the Church were participating in polygamy long before that and after as well. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God. And we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. And it all started with one man, Joseph Smith, who was born in Sharon, Vermont in December of 1805, just two days before Christmas, and eventually moved with his family to New York State in 1816 for better financial opportunities in a time when religious revivalism was hot in an era that was known as the Second Great Awakening. Little 10-year-old Joe and his family would be swept up in the excitement of the tent revivals put up all around them. Now, if you're a Patreon member, you'll remember me going further into the Pentecostal movement and tent revivals and all of that stuff during my episodes that covered the book Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit by Jeanette Winterson, as the main character in that book was raised in this kind of Pentecostal revivalist religion. And you'll remember that these places of worship had a sort of magical element to them. And the Smith family would engage in what was known as religious folk magic, which I've decided is going to be the name of my new Americana band, though they had never been particularly religious before then. It seems that it was Joe's mom who had decided that the family really needed to have some sort of religion to rely upon, and she got really into this second awakening stuff. She began having visions and got very into the Methodist revivalist services. Many of these revivals took place in Palmyra, New York, and while attending these with his family, Joe also began experiencing a series of visions. He began to practice scrying when he was about 14 years old in 1819, which is a form of divination in which a seer looked into a seer stone to receive a supernatural message. The seer stone would one day become a big part of the formation and guidance over the religion. The first of Joe's visions was in 1820, so he would have been about 15 years old, when he said he saw two personages, which he later revealed to be God the Father and Jesus Christ. And then at 18 years old, in 1823, he said he was visited by an angel. But more on that in a little bit. During his first visit from God and Jesus, they told him that his sins were forgiven, but they warned a teenage Joe that all of the churches had turned aside from the gospel. When Joe told his Methodist minister about his visions, he was dismissed of the idea. 
Then, according to Smith's later accounts, it was during this vision in 1823, when he was praying in the woods, that he was visited by the angel Moroni, and claimed that Moroni revealed to him that there was a buried book made of golden plates and some other artifacts, including a seer stone and some other things, were hidden in a hill near his home. You know what? Let's just let them tell you. I'm going to take you back to biblical times. 1823. An American man named Joe living on a farm in the Holy Land of Rochester, New York. You mean the Mormon prophet Joseph Smith? That's right. That young man spoke to God. He spoke to God? And God said, Joe, people really need to know that the Bible is in two parts. There's a part three to the Bible, Joe. And I, God, have anointed you to dig up this part three that is buried by a tree on the hill in your backyard. Wow, God says go to your backyard and start digging. That makes perfect sense. Joseph Smith went up. I mean, in all honesty, I should just play you the entire discography of the Book of Mormon for you to get the picture, but that would be cheating and illegal. (laughs) Josh Gad is just so fucking good. I love that man. Please don't be problematic. So like the song suggests, Moroni brought him to these gold plates and he started digging, but it would unfortunately take him multiple attempts to actually retrieve these gold plates and many years as well. In the meantime, Joe began a career as someone who finds buried treasure. I'm not kidding. Apparently, his dad did this as well, and it was a pretty lucrative thing. And it seems to be pretty common in particular with these revivalist movements because the seer stones were often used as a way to find some of these hidden treasures. Joe had some shady business practices, as he was one of these buried treasure finders for a really long time and literally never found a single treasure. So to get work, he spread a rumor about himself that he had a unique ability to find hidden items, so he was often paid really well for his attempts anyway. And all of this is really interesting to me, though, because the Mormons are known for being obsessed with their historical documents from their faith. And if y'all haven't seen the Netflix docuseries Murder Among the Mormons, do it once you've finished this episode because, whoa, it is so good and the series is done so well. There's a twist. You might see it coming. You might not. It's very good. In 1827, Joe moved to the town of Harmony, now Oakland, Pennsylvania, and boarded in the home of the Hale family. There, he met Emma, the seventh child and third daughter of Isaac and Elizabeth Hale. Emma was actually a direct descendant of seven passengers on the Mayflower, and her parents bought land in Susquehanna County in 1791, becoming the first permanent settlers there. So they seem pretty important in their area. Emma was raised in the Methodist Methodist Episcopal Congregation in Harmony. That is really hard for me to say. Episcopal. I don't know why where her uncle was the preacher, so she was also raised pretty damn religious. The Hales were also relatively wealthy, and they would often host lodgers and boarders in their home, making themselves known to be an honest, hardworking, and generous family. Joe and Emma first met in 1825 when he was hired by one of Emma's relatives to dig for money on the Hale family property. Joe and Emma, once they got little crushes on each other, would meet on the property in secret. Which could also be another reason why Joe never ended up finding any buried money, not wanting her father to know she was canoodling with the treasure hunter. When Joseph finally approached the Hale parents for their blessing to marry Emma, they refused. They considered him to be a scoundrel and a stranger, and they didn't love the fact that he wasn't able to accomplish what he was paid for with the dig. Isaac Hale also thought Joseph was uneducated and careless, certainly not worth marrying his daughter. Then, without anyone's permission, Joseph and Emma eloped on January 18, 1827, in South Bainbridge, New York. Shortly after that, they began boarding with Joe's parents in Manchester. That's the whole patrilocality thing. And Joe promised to abandon his career as a treasure hunter. To help out the young couple, Emma's dad, Isaac Hale, eventually offered for them to move back to Harmony to help Joe get started in business. That's so nice of him. He's like, you know, I didn't really like the guy, didn't want him to marry my daughter, but now they're married, so I'm going to be the good person here and help this Joe fella out. 
With Joe and Emma now being married, on September 22nd, 1827, Joe made his way to the hill near his old home once again, trying to receive the gold plates. And this time, he successfully retrieved them. Now, in my initial script, I decided to keep all of this. I wrote, I just thought of this. Maybe Moroni wanted you to be married? Was there some sort of message in this? And I actually got the answer last night when I was doing all my finishing touches on my research in the script. And apparently, the angel Moroni had told Joe that he would only be able to retrieve the plates if he had brought the quote-unquote right person. Through a revelation, Joseph ascertained that this right person was Emma. So he really had an objective for going after Emma and marrying her because he believed that she would be the gateway for him to finally retrieve these gold plates. Joe said that Moroni told him not to show anyone else the plates, but to translate them and publish the translation. When this is complete, they were to be returned to Moroni. Probably due to the fact that in this time period, people were more than willing to jump on the bandwagon with some of these new religions, Joe quickly amassed a couple of followers, including a guy named Martin Harris, a friend of his, who was hired as his scribe in 1828. Martin Harris was a wealthy neighbor who was willing to help support Joe in the founding of his religion. But he made a really shitty scribe. He ended up fucking up the job and losing the original manuscript, pissing off the angel Moroni and furthering the process of translation. So the job of scribe was then given to Emma. Eventually, he would add other friends to the mix as well. The completed work, The Book of Mormon, was published in Palmyra in March of 1830. The book brought Joseph Smith regional notoriety, which brought some negative attention to Joe and his followers as well, who began becoming victims of mob violence. The Book of Mormon in and of itself is like a fascinating storybook. In it, according to Joe and his believers, contains the writing of ancient prophets who lived on the American continent from 600 BC to AD 421. According to the Mormon belief, the Israelite named Lehi journeyed from the Middle East to the Americas. Lehi's descendants then split into two tribes, the Nephites and the Lamanites, named after two of his sons. The Lamanites were considered to be ancestors of Native Americans, and the Nephites were initially more prosperous and religious. The two would be locked in warfare for many, many years. Apparently, after Jesus was crucified and resurrected, he decided to visit the Americas, and he preached to the Nephites, which brought on an era of peace between the Nephites and the Lamanites for 200 years. That was so nice of you, Jesus. Thank you. Then in 385 AD, a Nephite prophet named Mormon, who had been writing the story of his people, turned in the core of what would become known as the Book of Mormon, transcribed onto golden plates, which he gave to his son, Moroni. Mormon would soon die, but Moroni survived another 36 years, and he added to the Book of Mormon before sealing it up in 421 AD and hiding it in Joseph Smith's future backyard. And this is something that the majority of the Latter-day Saints believe to be a historical text about things that actually happened, which may seem a bit unbelievable, but you know what? Pretty much all organized religion has a wacky origin story, if you really think about it. Then Joe got a revelation that they should move to Kirtland, Ohio, where they moved in 1831. Through the years as controversy grew, the Mormons would more and more frequently move from place to place to avoid persecution. And if you know anything about how cults and cult leaders keep their followers devoted to them, a lot of it has to do with martyrdom in a way. They're like, you are better than everyone else, and that is why they want to take us down and take you down, and everyone outside of our group is evil, and then when people do act violently towards those group members or persecute them in some way, it then brings on this sense of martyrdom. Like, look, we were right. You should all be so scared of these people because they want to destroy you and destroy our religion. So even from the very beginning of the Mormon church, there really was this us versus them mentality that continues to this day, maybe not so much with the mainstream Mormon faith, but most certainly in the FLDS and other groups that practice polygamy in particular. 
Now, there are some accounts that say that Joe began teaching polygamy as a doctrine as early as 1831 when they moved to Kirtland, Ohio. But I don't think it was said to that many people. I think he kind of kept it close to maybe a few people if he was expressing this new doctrine that early. And there's evidence that he himself began participating in polygamy beginning in 1835, which could have been a reason for non-Mormons to get angry. By the summer of 1835, there were about 1,500 to 2,000 Latter-day Saints in Kirtland. That August, they began to build a temple for the New Jerusalem just outside of Kirtland in the city of Independence. And within a year, more than 800 more church members moved to the area. And soon, the mob violence returned. Once, Joe's house was covered in tar and feathers, which I find kind of funny because no one's getting hurt. In 1833, they began to build the Grand Mormon Temple in Kirtland, which would be completed three years later. However, within that time, the violence toward the Mormons grew. Their businesses were being destroyed and people were being threatened. And also during that time, Joe's personal life and the personal lives of his believers were drastically shifting. It's believed that Joe's first relationship outside of his marriage with Emma was with a young woman by the name of Fanny Alger, who was hired by the Smith family for domestic help. Fanny's family had moved to Kirtland in 1830 and were some of the earliest members baptized into the Mormon church when Joe came to town. They're known as some of his earliest converts, which I'm sure made them pretty important or special. Though it seems that, unfortunately, Joseph Smith most likely had an inappropriate sexual relationship with the 15-year-old Fanny Alger, but there is no record of a marriage ceremony. Nevertheless, this could have sparked an idea for him to find a way to legitimize his adulterous urges. This certainly caused friction in his marriage with Emma. In 1837, Joe formed the Kirtland Safety Society Bank, but as the National Economic Panic rose, the bank collapsed. And also around this time, accusations began to grow surrounding Joe's financial and sexual improprieties. It's said that Joe slowly began to introduce the idea of plural marriage to members beginning in 1840. But the big deal came on July 12, 1843, when it was revealed that Joseph Smith had had a revelation, supposedly dictated by Joe to his scribe William Clayton, which reads, Wednesday 12th, this a.m., I wrote a revelation consisting of ten pages on the order of the priesthood, showing the designs in Moses, Abraham, David, and Solomon having many wives and concubines, etc. After it was written, Joseph presented it to Emma, and she said she didn't believe a word of it, which upset Joe. She didn't believe that this revelation could possibly be true. How did God believe that her husband should have to marry more women? And this was an issue, as part of Joe's revelation specified that the first wife's consent should be sought before a man marries another wife. But it also declares that Christ will destroy the first wife if she does not consent to plural marriage. If the wife's consent is denied, the husband is exempt from asking his wife's consent in the future. So what's the point of asking in the first place? Just to see them submit? In section 132 of the Doctrine and the Covenants, Joe called plural marriage the most holy and important doctrine ever revealed to man on earth. Now, this sounds like some fucked up patriarchal frat boy bullshit. Joe wanted to fuck multiple women, and because he placed himself in a position of power, he made it part of that religious doctrine to allow him to do so. Then it's the wife's fault that he... The prophet can't go along with this revelation because she sees right through it. Fuck you, Joe. Like I said, Emma was not happy about this revelation. And I wonder if she was suspicious as to the reasoning for it. I'm sure she saw right through him like I do. Polygamy caused a huge wedge in their marriage. And historians believe that she went back and forth on her feelings about plural marriage sometimes acquiescing to Joe's ceilings, a term for Mormon marriage after you've legally married one woman, and sometimes resisting. Emma knew about some of her husband's marriages, but she certainly did not know the extent of his polygamous activities. 
1843, Emma temporarily accepted marriages between her husband and four women of her choosing. These women then boarded in the Smith home, which was a decision she soon would come to regret. She would eventually demand the other wives to leave. To try to cajole his wife into liking the idea of plural marriage, Joe allowed her to begin participating in temple ceremonies and made a few other concessions to her. But this didn't change her mind, as in March of 1844, Emma publicly denounced polygamy as evil and destructive. In the 1840s, Joe created the New and Everlasting Covenant, which would supersede all earthly bonds. It's like a super special marriage. He taught that outside of this covenant, marriages were simply matters of contract, and that in the afterlife, those who were unmarried or who married outside of the covenant would be limited in their progression toward godhood. To enter the covenant, a man and woman must participate in a first anointing, a sealing ceremony, and a second anointing, also called sealing by the Holy Spirit of promise. When you're fully sealed by the covenant, it is said that no sin or blasphemy could keep them from their exaltation in the afterlife, with the only exceptions being murder and apostasy. According to Joe, man and woman needed to be sealed to each other in this new and everlasting covenant called celestial marriage. In order to be exalted in heaven and after death, this celestial marriage could reunite extended families and ancestors and descendants in the afterlife. And this leads me to the degrees of glory, to which there are three, and they are the ultimate eternal resting places for nearly everyone on earth after they die and resurrect into the spirit world. The church believes that these were first described by the Apostle Paul in the Bible, but Joe elaborated his message, and according to his vision, all people will be resurrected at the final judgment, seems standard so far, and they will be assigned to one of three degrees of glory called celestial, terrestrial, and telestial kingdoms. For those who commit the unpardonable sin, which is the same as eternal sin, ultimate sin, etc., and the biggest one, according to most religions, is blasphemy, or not believing in God, and they will not receive the kingdom of glory, but will be banished to the outer darkness with Satan, where they will be the sons of perdition. The highest of these levels is the celestial kingdom, and the residents will be those who have been the most righteous and has accepted the teaching of Christ in their hearts, yada, 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 yada. Joe also taught that those who had been sealed in celestial marriage to a spouse will be permitted to enter the highest degree of celestial glory. Though both men and women need to be married to get to the celestial kingdom, a husband must help his wife attain it in a way the wife doesn't for the husband, as they are seen as subordinate beings. These people will eventually become exalted, which means that after death, some people, men, will reach the highest level of salvation in the celestial kingdom and eternally live in God's presence. They can continue on as families, become gods themselves, create their own worlds, and make spirit children over whom they will govern. What? <laughs> also, an exalted man can have as many wives as he wants, while an exalted woman can only have one husband. In the official Mormon scripture, the Doctrine of Covenants, section 132, where celestial marriage is described, it states that only plural marriages qualify for the celestial kingdom, and a man must have at least three wives. Job believed that by marrying multiple women, you were saving or sealing more women to be able to join their families once again in the celestial kingdom. You were saving these women's afterlives. Some believe that Joe had this vision before his brother Alvin died and that he had appeared to him in a dream. Also, large families multiplied a man's glory in the afterlife, so it was important to have a lot of kids as well. But a lot of this would be kept under wraps until years later when a man named Brigham Young would take leadership. As for Joe's activities in polygamy, the first publication of a list of Joe's alleged wives was released, spoiler alert, after his death in 1887 by an assistant LDS historian. This included at least 27 women besides Emma. Now, there are currently 49 women on the list, but different historians disagree as to the number and identity of all of the wives. 
For many of these marriages, almost nothing is known of the marriage after the ceremony, especially since these marriages are only recognized by the religion and not under any sort of civil authority. His relationship with Fanny was attested to by several people, including Emma, and the relationship went from 1832 and wasn't discovered until about 1835 to 1837. But he never married her. Then there's Lucinda Pendleton, who was already married to a man named George Washington Harris, and Joe lived with the couple for a while. Weird. Then there was Louisa Beeman, who was sometimes referred to as the first plural wife of Joseph Smith. Louisa then remarried to Brigham Young after Joe's death, becoming Brigham Young's ninth wife. Apparently, Joe and Louisa's marriage would go forward without Emma's consent. Zena Diantha Huntington, who was already married to a man named Henry Bailey Jacobs, also married Joseph Smith on October 27, 1841, and when he died, she also married Brigham Young while her first husband was on mission in England. Zena's sister, Presidia Lanthrop Huntington, also married Joseph Smith in December of 1841, just a couple of months after marrying her sister. He literally had sister wives. What the fuck? After Joe died, she would remarry to a guy named Heber C. Kimball. Then there was the widow of Joe's brother, Don Carlos, by the name of Agnes Moulton Coolbrith, who married Joe in January 1842, a year after his brother's death. Joe married Sylvia Porter Lyon in February 1842, then married her mother, Patty Bartlett Sessions, one month later. Other women included on the list are Mary Elizabeth Rollins Leitner, Marinda Nancy Johnson, Elizabeth Davis, Sarah Marietta Kingsley, Delcina Johnson, Eliza Roxy Snow, Sarah Ann Whitney, Martha McBride, and so many more. Most of these women were aged 20 to 40 years old when Smith married them, but the youngest was Helen Marr Kimball, the daughter of close friends, who Joe married a few months after her fifth birthday. And now, after having listed all of the women that Joe married and stole from husbands or traded and passed around, it's, first of all, it's just going to get worse. But it also just makes me so fucking angry because none of this is done with the thought of the women in mind or the thought of these fucking children in mind. This is the beginning of such a dangerous precedent of leaders and higher-ups in the Mormon church feeling free to marry underage children, feeling free to fuck up families and move people around, and it all started with Joseph Smith, which is just really fucking shitty. It is said that Joe did not have sexual relations with all of his wives, but some were sealed to be with him in the next life. I don't necessarily trust Joe's sexual actions at this time. Joseph Smith would also go on to have a shit ton of kids. With Emma, he had Alvin, Thaddeus, Louisa, Joseph Murdoch, Julia Murdoch, the two Murdochs were adopted, Joseph III, Frederick Granger, Alexander, Don Carlos, and David Hiram. It is suggested that these are the children he had in his plural marriages— Oliver, John, Mosiah, Frank, Orson, Zebulon, George, Josephine, and Moroni. In the meantime, the Mormons were still struggling to find a place to openly practice their religion without persecution. They left Kirtland and moved to Missouri in March of 1838, where there were plans made for a new temple. Tensions rose as soon as Joe and his followers began to settle there for a number of reasons. One, land inheritance beliefs— Two, economic dominance. With the Mormons' numbers, they could easily wield significant influence on local economies. Three, proselytizing to Native Americans. Now, we don't have time to get into it really, but the Native Americans were the main subjects for conversion for a really, really, really long time in the faith. And number four, abolitionist sympathies, as the Mormons, thankfully, were anti-slavery, but the people of Missouri were not. So the Mormons and the non-Mormons were not getting off to a great start. At a July 4th celebration, one Mormon leader announced that they will defend themselves and warns of war or extermination with hostile neighbors. After a bloody melee over whether or not the Mormons should be able to vote that August, 
led to Governor Lilburn Boggs to order all Mormons to either be driven from the state or wiped out. This seems crazy because, yes, I don't agree with a lot of the things that the Mormon church is doing, but they are American citizens and should be allowed to vote, and violence just shouldn't have happened. Anti-Mormon mob attacks grew, further martyring the followers. Joe was arrested, charged with treason, and he was even sentenced to death. His life was only spared when an officer refused to carry out the execution. When he got out of jail, he and his followers moved to Illinois in 1839. Let's fast forward a bit now to 1844. As all the interesting stuff in that time I already covered with all of his plural marriage visions and all, but in 1844, Joe decided that he wanted to run for President of the United States. He announced in a sermon that those who obey God's commands can become gods themselves. He also ordered an attack and destruction of the opposing newspaper, the Nauvoo Expositor, and the ensuing outcry led to criminal charges against Joe. While in jail with his brother Hiram Smith, on June 27, 1844, an armed mob stormed the place where they were being detained, and they were both shot and killed. No one was ever convicted of the crime. After Joe's death, non-Mormon papers unanimously portrayed him as a religious fanatic, but in the eyes of the LDS, he was seen as a prophet, martyred to seal the testimony of his faith. Then... Brigham Young became the second president of the LDS Church in 1847. Brigham Young was a super active polygamist and would have at least 56 wives and 57 children. Jesus Christ, literally. After Joe's murder in 1844, under the new leadership, the Mormons moved to Utah in 1847, and there they brought the practice of polygamy out of the shadows. By the 1880s, it was estimated that about 20 to 30 percent of Mormon families practiced polygamy. Following Brigham Young, Mormon theologians hold polygamy as a core doctrine and as derived out of patriarchal manliness. Polygamy is so manly. According to a paper called Lords of Creation, Polygamy, the Abrahamic Household, and Mormon Patriarchy by Carmen Hardy from 1994, in the Journal of Mormon History, it states... Polygamy and the Abrahamic household were, I will contend, devices by which husbands and fathers sought to preserve the tradition of male dominance in the home. It has been observed by historians that the early Mormon religion seemed to attract men in greater numbers than women. I wonder why. Smith, and in turn the leaders to come after him, always ensured that women were kept under the foot of men in the religion. Smith indicated throughout his time that women were not a reliable source for spiritual truths and acted dismissive of those who came forward. It was expected of women to keep silent and obey their husbands as they would the Lord. In 1841, Brigham Young stated, Let the head of the family dictate. I mean the man, not the woman. He said the problem lay in the women's inherited nature. Eve's descendants bore her curse. It was in part because of Eve's curse that women were not allowed a plurality of spouses. Their affections must be fixed on their husbands, or else they'll get in trouble. Assumptions of female inferiority led to arguments that men must then control them. Brigham Young himself counseled, Get good young women so that they can be controlled. Ew. Young also once said, let our wives be the weaker vessels and men be men and show the women by their superior ability that God gives husbands wisdom and ability to lead their wives into his presence. Blech. And he advised women, if they wish to be loved by their husbands, that they must, quote, copy his mind and his spirit. And if they did this, their husband could not help but love them. Jesus Christ, that's such an egotistical belief. It's like, I can only love you if you're exactly like me. Women were mocked and told to be quiet when they asserted their own opinions. Brigham Young taught that the husband is all-knowing, saying, I am conversant with all the whys and wherefores, he says. I think in this case, my dear, that I know better than you. Men were taught not just to rule their household, but to rule it benevolently, and a woman was required to obey. Children were taught that if their mothers and fathers were in a dispute, they were to automatically take the side of the father. 
when it comes to a husband taking more wives, it's believed that men who bowed to the wishes of their wives and refused to enter plural marriage were of but liege account in the church and kingdom of God. They made it seem like for both the wives and husbands, there was no choice in the matter. A husband had to come to the wife first for consent, but it was really just a formality since he was going to do it anyway, in turn putting an exorbitant amount of pressure on the wives to go along with plural marriage out of fear of conflict or dispute. And even if the husband didn't want to go along with plural marriage, he too felt pressured to do so in order to be a good and prominent member of the church. He wants to get to that celestial kingdom, goddammit. And in turn, monogamists were described by the Mormons at this time as a, quote, poor, narrow-minded, pinched-back rave of men who chain themselves down to the law of monogamy and live their days under the dominion of one wife. And what guy wants that reputation? In Udney Hay Jacobs' 1843 pamphlet, Jacob wrote that plural marriage was in urgent need to restore men as supreme rulers of the home. He insisted that whenever women had any power over men whatsoever throughout history, that social and moral confusion was the result. He said that the great frailty of contemporary society was due to the surrender of male independence and authority to women. Funnily enough, polygamy was also sometimes called patriarchal marriage, and the LDS saw this practice as the key to a successful government everywhere— and as an explanation for the rise and fall of societies throughout history. Polygamy is here to save us all. For Joseph Smith, he held up Abraham and other patriarchs as models for Joseph and Emma's relationship. Emma was to model herself as Sarah, Abraham's wife, who accepted the wives God had given her husband. But in the Bible, they aren't necessarily clear if Abraham and Sarah are brother and sister or not, so that adds a whole other level to the Abraham and Sarah relationship. There is a quote in the Bible that says, And yet indeed she is my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. So that seems pretty clear. Sarah was not able to have Abraham's baby. So God was like, Abraham, go out, go nuts have sex with all of these women, take more wives, as it is of the utmost importance for men to spread his seed as far and wide as humanly possible in order to, quote, affect the perpetuity and increase of God in an endless succession of families. The Mormons take this very seriously. What they call the law of Sarah permits a husband to enter plural marriages. Joseph Smith wanted to imitate Abraham, meaning that Emma had to obey Joseph just as Sarah had to Abraham. Joe also said that practicing polygamy could have other benefits here on this planet, including good health and longevity. Under Brigham Young and those to follow, polygamy would be practiced among Utah Mormons for about 40 years. Nearly all of church leadership were involved in it, and about 25 to 30 percent of Mormon families did too at this time. And at this time, one-third of women of marriage age were participants. And Brigham Young did a lot to further the Mormon religion in this time and move polygamy further into the mainstream of the religion. He was even appointed governor of the Utah Territory before statehood in 1850. The doctrine of polygamy was made public outside of the church in 1852. And at this point, more than 20,000 Mormons now lived in the Salt Lake City area. Some of the Mormon followers totally disagreed with Young's polygamous announcement, and some split off into other groups, like the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. These members also believed that leadership of the church should remain within the Smith family. Then, major trouble occurred. In 1857, President James Buchanan, after hearing that Brigham Young was running Utah as a personal theocracy— declared a rebellion against the Mormons, and sent 2,500 soldiers to Salt Lake City. There was one big battle, named the Mountain Meadows Massacre, in which 120 men, women, and children were killed. Only 17 children under the age of 8 were spared. Things got even worse in 1858 when Buchanan declared the Mormon War and issued a statement saying that continuing to practice plural marriage will prevent Utah's admission to the Union as a state. That's a pretty big threat. In 1862, the Moral Anti-Bigamy Act criminalized plural marriages in the U.S. territories, but President Abe Lincoln declined to enforce it. 
It wouldn't be until 1879 when the Supreme Court would eventually uphold the act. Almost 10 years later, in 1871, Brigham Young was charged but not convicted with the polygamy offense. He died six years later in 1877. With all of the pressure from the U.S. government, in 1890, the church repealed the practice of polygamy. It was published by the church president at the time, Wilford Woodruff, entitled The 1890 Manifesto. Utah would finally then be granted statehood in 1896. And polygamy officially ended in 1905 with the Second Manifesto. The Second Manifesto effectively excommunicated any Mormon who practiced plural marriage. They also agreed to cooperate with federal authorities in prosecuting polygamists. Today, the LDS Church acknowledges that Joseph Smith had taught and practiced plural marriage, and most of them reject the practice today. However, not everyone was ready to give up on the doctrine, which resulted in the church further splintering off into different sects. Now, finally, we must get into the FLDS, the Fundamentalist Latter-day Saints. In 1913, the Mormons founded Short Creek, which is on the border of Arizona and Utah. Brigham Young had apparently visited there once and said that this place would be perfect for his people to end up. Short Creek ended up becoming the place where all excommunicated polygamists ended up. The location on the Arizona-Utah border was ideal for the group because it made it easy for the group to avoid state raids by hopping across state lines like crossing the street. The first leader of the FLDS Church in Short Creek was John Y. Barlow, who led the community until 1949 and was succeeded by Leroy S. Johnson. It was under Leroy that the phrase, keep sweet, was originated as a way to control the children and women in the congregation to act in a sweet and kind manner at all times. It would also one day be the title of a Netflix documentary that I highly suggest you watch when you're done with this episode as well. There were a handful of families who moved to Short Creek, not very many people, and they were members of the Council of Friends with the leadership of John W. Woolley, Lauren C. Woolley, John's son, J. Leslie Broadbent, John Y. Barlow, Joseph M. Musser, and Charles Zitting. Sometime before 1920, Lauren Woolley went to the LDS president, John Taylor, asking to set five men apart to ensure that the practice of polygamy would continue into perpetuity, even if abandoned by the church. Lauren Woolley, along with his father and the four others, were ordained into the council for the exact purpose to ensure that, quote, no year passed by without children being born in the principle of plural marriage. Woolley died in September of 1934, and leadership fell to John Y. Barlow, who sent the first group to Short Creek, where they thought it was also secluded enough to practice polygamy. As time went on, there were additions to the council. Former members died and made room for new members, like Leroy S. Johnson and Rulon Jeffs. The authority of the council was retained to the priesthood, not to the church. Lauren Woolley, along with his father and the four others, were ordained into the council for the exact purpose to ensure that, quote, no year passed by without children being born in the principle of plural marriage. Because all of the children born were born of these first few families, the amount of incest in the FLDS is absurd. Today, Short Creek, or the Colorado City Hilldale area, has the world's highest incidence of fumarase deficiency, an extremely rare genetic disease caused by incest. Genetics attribute this to the prevalence of cousin marriage between the descendants of the town's founders, Joseph Smith Jessup and John Y. Barlow. The Jessup name alone has left a prominent legacy, with family historians reporting to have over 10,000 descendants, as nearly all of Joseph Smith Jessup's children ended up in plural marriages. Most modern members of Short Creek, regardless of their surnames, can trace at least some of their lineage back to one of these two men. And now, keep all of that in mind, because that is the end of what is going to be a two-part episode. I recorded for over an hour and 40 minutes today. So I was like, 
fuck it. We got to split this bad boy up. And that is what I am doing now. So I'm going to leave you off here and we're going to start next week off with the 1953 Short Creek Raid. But before I go, I want to remind you all that I really want your Santa Claus stories, elf on the shelf stories, tell me when you stopped believing in that kind of stuff, or tell me about your kids. I really want to get some really great, fun holiday stories for this week's mini episode. Have them in to me by Thursday and email me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at angry neighborhood feminist. And don't forget to support the show on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash angryneighborhoodfeminist or click the link in the show notes to join the Angry Feminist Book Club or to become a feminist fave. Last but not least, as always, I would greatly appreciate it if anyone who enjoys the show and hasn't left a review on Apple Podcasts to please do so. It truly helps me out so much not just with those stars, but with that little sentence you write that says why you enjoy the show. Of course, if you listen on Spotify and want to rate me over there as well, I ain't going to be mad at you. All right, my voice is exhausted. I need a glass of wine. I am done. With all of that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.